I'm blessed today to be speaking with documentary filmmaker Carrie David. Carrie's recent film, Breaking Their Silence, is making global noise at a critical time. Carrie looks at women-led organizations on the front lines of the anti-poaching crisis, or as she describes, the sixth largest mass extinction on record. In this interview, you'll learn why your microactions matter, what you can do right now to save the animal kingdom from humans, and even if you aren't a tree-hugging animal lover, why you should care about the poaching crisis. This is the Supergivers Podcast. I'm so grateful that you're willing to do this today. And first of all, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Jesse. I'm excited to be with you. Yeah, so it seems like you're most known for your, your work with Over and Above Africa. And is that inspired from... Um, breaking their silence or have you had that project going for a while now? So the two of them are synergistic in that I had started, um, well I was actually invited to a fundraiser at downtown Los Angeles and that's when I first heard about the poaching crisis and the human animal wildlife crisis and when I came out I was shell-shocked and I thought I have to do something um, and what I ultimately came up with was I was going to start my own nonprofit, which would be over and above Africa and I would make it affordable for anybody who wanted to donate at $5 a month. So before I launched that, I had to go to Africa so that I knew what I was talking about and I had to research nonprofits. And when I was in Africa, South Africa, actually, I was meeting the most phenomenal men who were doing wonderful work in this space, but I wasn't meeting any women. And I knew that there had to be women in this space. And so I slowly was just reaching out to people saying, Hey, is there anybody that um, is, you know, is working in the, in the anti-poaching world who I'd love to speak with or just to find out more from sort of the female perspective of how they approach it. And one by one, people were just referring me until it became a deluge. And so I was sort of juggling all these incredible women, not really knowing what to do with it. But at the same time, I launched Over and Above Africa. I wanted to make a documentary. I didn't want to do it on a subject that had already been done. I needed to sort of find a unique way into it. And then I had the idea of, well, wait a minute, I'm a female filmmaker. I could I could tell this story through the female lens by just interviewing women. So the two really, they go hand in hand with each other. And what was it like for you as a filmmaker, but also as an activist and a woman, the more women you met? Because in watching the film, there's really a, a, a variety of women that you, that you interview. So I have to imagine that it impacted you and your motivation and your energy. I was, I don't think of myself as an activist. I sort of want to lead with the fact that I'm not a wildlife expert. And I base my journey with this film uh, on that because I am just every person. I'm not, there's nothing special about me, which means if I can do this, then every single person on the planet who has or is affected by the fate of our animals can do the same thing. So I was perpetually in a state of awe. Every time I would, you know, speak with one of these women, uh, just would be learning continually of the process but then also in awe of how every single day they get up and they they I wouldn't say they throw caution to the wind because they are very they are very cautious but they just go ahead and do the work despite how dangerous it is and there's so much money involved from the crime syndicate's perspective that any one of these women it, it's in their best interest to get them out of it and so they they still do this work even though it's really dangerous. And I think that's the thing that struck me most, just that I was always in awe of their courage because it was a quiet courage. It wasn't something they wore on their 
you know, like a badge of honor, like check me out, I'm courageous. It, it, it really doesn't enter into their um, process at all. They just do the work because they love the animals so much. Yeah, there wasn't really any any drive for acknowledgement. And, mm. and I noticed that with several women you interviewed that they commented like, essentially, hey, we're not going to get rich doing this. And guess what? We might die. <laughs> <laughs> so this has to be coming from a different place inside them, doesn't it? You know, it does. One of the things that struck me most, it didn't actually make it into the film, but each of the women in their own way said, I didn't come to this career as a choice. I either fell upon it, you know, somebody introduced me to it. But the moment that I got into this position, I felt like I was in the flow of life, that I was living a life of purpose and I was living it with passion. And at that point, when they had their purpose and passion meet, money had no meaning to them. It didn't matter they weren't making a lot of money because their lives were so rich and so full. So that struck me, uh, which, you know, wouldn't we love to bring that back to every other country and have us all sort of swallow that and see how that feels? What if you weren't doing something for the money, but you were doing it because you were passionate about it and you woke up and it gave you joy and it made you feel good to be doing that in the world, whatever that is. Did that impact you going through that experience into your sense of meaning? You know, from the moment that I started this film, from the moment that I thought that's what I want to do, to now, I have felt completely in the flow. Now that doesn't mean to say that there weren't enormous challenges that came up in filming that, because there were, continual. But I never felt like this wasn't gonna get done. Every, even when something happened that was sort of felt cat catastrophic at the moment, I would always say trust in the process and I would let it go, which is not easy for me. <laughs> I would say let it go and sure enough, whatever came out of that or whatever direction I then had to take ended up being something amazing, magnificent that I probably wouldn't have thought of anyway. So yeah, definitely factored in. I want, I want people to hear why poaching in South Africa and Kenya and all these places, why people in the West should care because in the, in the film, I think you do a great job of highlighting how essential different species are to the survival of all of ecology, right? Yeah. Um, I'm also really interested in this gender thing. So whichever feels more alive for you, I'm curious to know a little bit about what you think women might be adding to this that, that most men don't inherently have. And also, yeah, like the ecology piece. Mm -hmm. um, can I jump into why people should care first? Your first question was why, why people should care, which I, I love that question because it's easy for me. I love animals so much. That's why I care. But not everyone does. And I embrace that. So there are several reasons that you might want to get involved with us and what we're doing to prevent the extinction of animals. And the first one is that it's now been proven, particularly by the Elephant Action League, um, Andrea Costa, who, who run, heads that, did intensive research, is that the profits from anti-poaching, I'm sorry, profits from poaching, fund global terrorism. So if you are someone who wants to someday take their family anywhere in the world safely to expose your family to to culture, then you don't want to be threatened with potential um, violence. And then if you could come over here and help us curb this now, because they're only doing this, these crime syndicates are only doing this because there's enormous amount of money. Uh, it's in excess of $22 billion a year for, for, for wildlife parts. So there's that element, the ecology of losing the animals on our planet. We're right now in the middle of losing 1 million species. We're in the sixth greatest extinction. So, and you can literally Google that, it'll come right up and it'll tell you all about it. So if you wanna think about how in the film I mentioned that when an elephant pushes over a tree 
and then goes on its way, that tree becomes an ecological world for a variety of species to, to flourish. And each of those species then flourishes for the, it's for the world. So that's a microcosm that just happens in that little tree. So if you magnify that by taking out all of the animals that are threatened right now, it doesn't bode well for humankind. Yes, absolutely. And I'm so glad you say that because I think there's a lot of people who can see this issue as, oh, great, you know, we care about this because we have compassion for animals. So I, I can just detach myself from caring about animals and pretend like it doesn't affect me. But right. that's, that's not the case at all. As we know, especially from looking at, right, like your film didn't get into this, but the the effects on the ocean from shark fin poaching, right. for instance, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's all the same thing. No, it's you're all the same. Right. It's all the same thing, whether it's marine life and the work that's being done there. You know, I mean, I'm eternally confused by we're plunder, we're, you know, we're plundering this planet, right? We're raping it of all of its material goods and use and when and no one's using the word sustainability that's doing it. Not those people who are defending it. They use it all day long. But you can't like a robot go out there and just rape and pillage everything that is in our future and think that there isn't going to, well, what's your plan B? You know, all this talk, I think Elon Musk is talking about going to Mars. It's a, it's a gray dusty planet with nothing that can support us. And here we live on this gorgeous planet and we're just messing it up. And what we could do is we could turn it around. Um, one of the things in the film that I hope it's my leading reason for making the film was to say, you know, you get helpless when you hear of something as big as, as, as the extinction of these animals. You get really helpless when you feel like, well, it's so big and, and what am I going to do? But the truth of the matter is that each of us, we can each do something. So for me, I did feel helpless and I wanted to act and I thought, well, I'm a filmmaker. I'll go make a film about it. I had no, I was not tied to the end product of whether that film would ever happen or what that film would be. I was never tied to that. I just knew that that was something I could do. And from the moment that I decided to do that, I didn't feel hopeless anymore. And so if you're someone who likes to lobby with your local you know, officials, then that's wonderful. Start a petition and get people to sign that petition about protecting the environment, protecting wildlife. You know, if you want to help vote for politicians that whether you're left or right, vote for politicians that also include the environment and animal protection on their platform. These are little things that you can do. Um, I started over and above Africa, like I had said earlier, so that if you are literally cannot think of one thing that you can do, then for $5 a month, you can be a member of over and above Africa and we will, allocate your money to, for you and we'll do it to vetted organizations on the ground that are making huge impact and we will take videos of that money being spent and send them to you so you can see the effect that you're having so you might think well five dollars a month that doesn't seem like like much what can you do with that well five dollars a month times a million members that's something that you can do something with and that little um, microcosm of saying that tells you how anything that we do when you multiply it by a million has a huge impact. And so, I mean, sort of circling back to that conversation about if you don't love animals, you know what, then spend the morning at the beach and pick up litter. You will feel better for it if you're, if you are overwhelmed or feeling hopeless about this, the potential future of our planet and, and, and its sustainability. The continued message, even for people who are really egocentric and not so connected with compassion for animals, is just to remember that even if you don't care, you know, a vote for the environment, including all these species, is a vote for your own well-being and, and the well-being of your future generation, potentially. 
Exactly. Um, and it's yeah. a, at least to be able to, to appeal to that level of person, because I think this can get really kind of like almost minimized into this small bleeding heart liberal issue. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the biggest thing I want people to hear is this, this actually affects everybody, whether you really care about, you know, a dying rhino or not, this yeah. will affect you. It will. And, and one of the things that doesn't get mentioned, I think, enough is that, you know, you hear numbers, statistics change all the time about how many rhino are left, how many, you know, like there's a, about 5,000 black rhino left. And you think, oh, 5,000, that's a ton of rhino. Well, actually, when you think about the gene pool shrinking, you know, every time and three rhino are murdered every day for their horn. And as I do mention in the film, along that journey, I decided, not decided, I came to the decision, having spoken with everybody, because they can take that horn and keep the rhino alive, but they don't. They butcher the rhino so it dies. And they stockpile the rhino horn, which is worth more than gold, worth more than any other material substance on earth, as it's been alleged. And they'll stockpile that so that when there are no rhino anymore, that will then be a priceless commodity that they can sell at a later date. I think that's their idea of sustainability. So I think about that and, you know, we really don't have a lot of time to act on any front when it comes to whether it's evil, you know, whether it's our ecology, whether it's our um, save, the, save the animals that are becoming extinct or just the climate change that's happening. We have to act now and you will feel so empowered if you do something. That's the message I want to say is like whatever your little thing is or your big thing is, if you do it, you will not feel hopeless. You know, we've got this apathy happening. I think there's just so much uh, false information coming at us and it's, it's information overload. And so it sort of does deplete you. And you think, like you had said earlier, Jesse, it makes you feel a little bit, you know, do I care about the human race? Is it worth saving? But yes, it, of course we care about it. And of course it is. And I'm giving, I'm hopefully going to inspire people to say, you can do little things that are going to make you feel better. And that's- Yeah. And we'll come back to this at the end and make sure we've got some, some options for folks to grab onto out of this, because this interview is in fact, a a point of action for me and way I really appreciate about you that you'd originally said no to this and that was the part of me that said gosh I just want her to understand how how supportive I am of this and how important this is you're agreeing to talk to me today is is allows for me to feel like I can do something too to share this message with you just wow. as an example <laughs> yeah, it's working it's, it's working. working so I want to back up and I don't want to get lost on this um unless unless it opens up something really, really important. But I just want to know, through your research and your interviews, what do we know about the people who are buying? Because this whole this whole problem only exists because there's a market for this material, right? So yeah. who who values rhino horns and elephant tusks and pangolin scales mm. and and why? Oh my gosh, it's such a great question, such a loaded question. So it's Asia in a word. And one of the reasons I interviewed two, two of the Vietnamese women that I did in my film was because I didn't want to vilify Asia. I don't think vilifying those people is going to make this something that they will then embrace and like, oh, okay, we need to change. So, so basically what it is, is that the myth is rhino horn can cure cancer and that it can uh, give you an erection if you're struggling with that and you're a male. The truth of the matter is rhino horn is made of keratin, which is the same stuff that your hair and your fingernails are made, made of, and it has been proven there is no medicinal value to it whatsoever. However, 
rhino horn when it gets to Asia is ground up and it's mixed with Viagra and then given to men who have trouble getting an erection. And of course they miraculously get an erection and they think it's the rhino horn, not knowing it's been blended with Viagra. So you're dealing with several things. It used to be that it was just that this is the mythology in Asia, that these wild animals have mythical powers uh, with their body parts, whether that be lion bone, whether it be elephant tusk or rhino horn. It's, it's, it's not true. And sadly, what I did learn while I was in the country is that often a certain generation, like if a grandmother gets cancer, um, she will turn to rhino horn, which is expensive in Asia also. She will sell her house. She will sell, and the family will sell their belongings to get them the, the rhino horn so that they can cure of cancer. And then of course it doesn't cure her of cancer. And now they're homeless and they're without their money. So it's not even, it's not even beneficial within the country. Um, that's, that's one angle. There's a nouveau riche element coming up in Asia now and, and owning any kind of rhino jewelry or ivory is considered, uh, check me out, I'm doing great in the world. So it's bragging rights. And that's very unfortunate because that's, they are enlightened and they know better. Uh, I can't quote the source, but there was a survey recently done, or sorry, a statistic posted that said that even though that it was explained to certain Asian countries and the population and saying that these animals will become extinct if you continue with this. Will you stop? They didn't care. That was super demoralizing. So in the film, I speak to two women who each have separate organizations and they're working to try to educate their countrymen, country people, to explain pangolin scales will not cure lactation problems for, for mothers who have newborn babies. They've had a very successful campaign called Happy as a Pangolin. And it, it was so successful that the women who were in maternity wards, when they realized these, these scales did nothing for their lactation problems, they would then go out and be ambassadors for other new mums to say, don't hurt the pangolin, which uh, you know is the most endangered species right now. Um, it's the most trafficked animal. And they're saying it doesn't work. So uh, try, try things that really do work and look to, you know, uh, traditional medicine, not cultural uh, mytho uh, in, that, in that mythology. So, so sadly it is Asians and that's, you know, shark fin soup, that is lion bones. It's the whole trade is Asia. If Asia didn't have this demand, uh, we on the conservation side believe that there wouldn't be an issue with any of these animals becoming extinct. There, there will always be poaching, Jesse. That, that's something I definitely came to understand. But there's such a thing as sort of sustainable poaching, which means that if that meat and the body parts were just internal in Africa or in Asia where they are, then it could be sustained. So while I'm against it, at least the animals would thrive and survive. The one good thing I do, before I forget, I do want to say this, as dire as it is right now, and as Petronelle says in our film, we are in the last five minutes, we were at a really bad place in the 70s and 80s with poaching, and the entire planet stepped up and said, no, not on our watch. And that was before social media, that was just when word got out through marketing, and they stepped up and said, no, we're not going to do it. And they lobbied their officials, and they had their government talk to other governments, um, and it was really successful. And that's what I'm hoping to galvanize now is that if we, every person steps up and says, not on my watch, they won't go, then that's all we need, you know? I love that. And backing up to this problem, which could be stated as a gap in, in terms of creating action from insight. Um, and, we, and this is not the only arena in the humanity that we see this where we can say, hey, look, A, 
plus B does not equal C. And people can still say, I don't care. I still want to believe that it equals C, right? Yeah. So is, is the research, like the one way to close a gap with people is to try to concretize the evidence, right? Mm -hmm. is, is that having an impact on people? You know, it's really hard to say, Jesse. I, want, I immediately want to say yes, of course, because I'm super hopeful. Uh, I think it's a really complex situation. I think that, um, I think the best that we can do, and I'll just circle back round about how to make people accountable if they want to be, is to say there are things that you can do at, at ground zero that are just smart things to do. So for instance, if you are going to go to Africa and you want to go and stay at a game reserve, then research that game reserve and are they conservation minded? Are they, um, for instance, if you go to India and you go to a resort that lets you ride elephants, elephants are tortured so that you are able to ride them. So that's definitely not conservation minded. If you go to any resort where you can pet a, a lion or a tiger or a big cat, those cats are, the, the big cats are drugged and the, the little cubs that you can pet Will never, they will never be able to be rewilded. And so they become uh, canned lion hunting targets. And then when they're killed, their bones become for the, for the lion bone trade. So our disposable income is our most powerful weapon. How we spend our money dictates what other countries and resorts do. For instance, if you stop spending money at a place that isn't conservation minded, they will soon become conservation minded because they have to. So there are things that we can do en masse, but you know, spend a little time researching where your money goes. Um, and yeah, I mean, sorry, I think I got yeah, I'm, off I'm topic so, a little bit. Yeah, I'm so with you. And I believe conscious consumerism is, is the most powerful political tool we have as well. And yes. And, and so I, when I was watching Breaking Their Silence, you know, of course, my, one of my immediate reactions was to, was to have, really volatile anger towards the poachers. But I think it's important to highlight that the poachers are really only, only sort of a, a byproduct of the perception of the market. This is mu a much bigger system. Like it wouldn't really do anything to take, it's sort of like trying to be mad at terrorists or trying to be mad at political officials. They're, they're products of a bigger system. And I yeah. think what I'm hearing you say is that, so we have education happening. It also seems like it might be part of the solution to to try to create um, better products and mm. things that are more sustainable. I mean, of course, in a lot of cases that already exists, so that's not the problem, right? <laughs> yeah, no, I, listen, it's, it's like, you know, every, every avenue go down, it's, it's a complex avenue. Right. Crime, you know, you, like you say, the poachers at ground zero, they make the least amount of money, they risk the most, they risk their lives doing it. And they, I wouldn't say that it's because they don't have an alternative. And I hope that I've point that out in the film just by the poacher that you, the reformed poacher that you do meet. Uh, mostly those poachers are inspired by greed and they're just the criminal element. They're thinking, you know, I could make $5,000 by killing a rhino and I'll get five years in jail, but I would never make $5,000 over five years. So it's still a good deal to me. So I'm going to do it anyway. Like that's, it's like going to Vegas and putting everything on red. Sometimes some people, they're going to do that. Um, there are other ways in which communities can uh, not not poach. So, so I don't I don't subscribe to poachers doing it because they're hand to mouth. If that were the case, they wouldn't leave the entire rhino behind. They would use that rhino meat for the community. That's the biggest tell for me that it isn't that. Um, it's it's pure greed, and there is so much money in it. The crime syndicates that 
fund this. They're the same crime syndicates that fund illegal arms, drugs, the human trafficking trade. They go where the money is. The, 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 the most obvious solution would be to dry up the demand for these body parts and these um, and the tusks and the horns. And for that, we really do have to look to Asia. So because that's where the demand is. So how, how we do that, you know, obviously I've seen everything on Facebook from boycott China, boycott Vietnam. Uh, yes, you could do that, but we really would have to do it on mass to have any effect at all. Right. Right. And that's a, it's a pretty disconnected consequence. I'm not even sure. It sounds like we really need to affect people's belief systems at a transgenerational level. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. And that's, that's, trying to jar them out of their patterns through films like this and through other sorts of awareness. And obviously I think one of the most powerful, as you mentioned with the pangolin, the happy as a pangolin is for their peers to be able to say, Hey, guess what? I found the, I've, I've seen the light. Yeah. <laughs> and well, it doesn't include killing these animals. It, well, <laughs> you know, you asked me a question earlier and, and I, I, I went off on a tangent, but basically you had said, how do women do this differently? What, you know, what did I learn? Yeah women that were in this in this space which speaks to that question because women come at this with a more compassionate a more willingness to compromise um they are looking to see for instance in the community where poaching takes place how can you make that community value the animals alive alive more than they are dead so that can happen in several ways. Um, in Tanzania, they're successfully um, offering up farms, tools, and supplies to villagers who keep poaching out of their environment for a year. Uh, there's also in Tanzania, there's an issue with the wild, with the human wildlife trafficking. That's when the uh, the humans' growth is pushing wildlife out of their environment. They have nowhere to go, and so they end up clashing with communities. So if an elephant comes into a community and tramples over the the, um, the, 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 their, their crop that year, then that's their food gone for a year. And so they are going to poison that elephant with, you know, poison darts, but they found out by just putting up hot peppers and tying them this specific hot pepper, which I can't name, but there is one and they tie it and they do these pepper fences all the way around the community and the elephants are, are allergic to them or they're frightened of them or they don't like the smell, but they stay away. And so, so, so organizations can come in and help the community set those up. And that's ways in which we can work with the communities. Uh, we can say, we'll bring you fresh water, help you get those water wells. And in return, just make sure that no one in, comes to your community and poaches the wildlife in your arena. So that's how women come to this differently. And that there's a, they're looking for the compromise. There's no macho. Um, there's no aggression. That's very, it's a very masculine trait, you know, which I, I always set the parallel with, you know, in the, in the animal kingdom, males come at it with gnashing teeth and claws and biting and roaring. And it's not dissimilar to the way some men come to the anti-poaching arena. But women, you know, are again, like the, the, the female animals in the wild, which is there's a nurturing uh, to be done. There's looking for ways in which everybody wins. And I think ultimately that's the solution. You know, they want to bring in education. Um, there's one myth I wanted to share, which which completely blew my mind when I, when I was in Africa and found out because I went over there thinking, why would you want this beautiful rhinoceros or elephant to go extinct or this pangolin to go extinct when it's your animal, you know, in your arena. And most Africans will never see a rhinoceros, will never see a giraffe 
will never see an elephant. And that is because they're on mostly game reserves. And that's for rich Westerners to come in and they're not. So they don't even understand why we as Westerners want to save, in quotes, save the rhino, when they need to have clean water for their children, they need to have education for their children, and they need to have food for their children. Why are you not spending money saving their children, let alone asking them to take care of an animal that they most likely will never see? Uh, that was shocking to me. Yeah, I'm wondering what else you learned that you would want Westerners to understand about this issue. Um, I think the biggest takeaway, and we did brush on it, is not to get overwhelmed by where we're at, because we're in the sixth greatest extinction, um, because we do have time to turn it around. But Trang says something, uh, no, not Trang, sorry, Hong says something in the film, which is the greatest threat to extinction is the hope that somebody else will do something to save it. I'm mm -hmm. sorry, the greatest threat to our planet is the belief right. that somebody else will save it. And you know, we're all guilty of that, right? Whatever our passion, we might be angry at whoever our politician is in office, or we might be, but if we don't step up and actually vote, if we then, then we don't get to be angry. So if you love or you profess to love animals, then, you know, you have to step up and, and sitting back and thinking somebody else has it, they don't. You know, that, one of, that was one of my takeaways was, can I make a film that will inspire people and give people hope to want to get up and do something. Because what I didn't want to do was make a film that would depress people at the end and think that there was no hope. And if I could do it through women, what, and, and you see what these women are, are, I don't want to say giving up because they really aren't giving, it's not giving up, but they do sacrifice a more affluent lifestyle to do this work. But the feeling that they get while you may not get that entire feeling because you don't live your whole life that way, you can have an aspect of that feeling and feel fantastic about yourself if you step up every day and just do one thing for the environment or do one thing for the cause that you believe in. I love that. And then I think my, my paraphrase is that it can feel overwhelming for a lot of people. Yeah. And at the same time, what I'm hearing you say is actually small actions are energizing. Yeah, and when multiplied, have huge effect around the planet, right? So, so you could say, what does my one vote do? Well, your one vote does nothing. But your one vote times, you know, tens of millions of people puts people into office. So it's, you know, it's applicable to anything that you care deeply about, but you just have to step up. You have to make that first, um, yeah, you're going to make that first step and say, uh, this means something to me, and I'm going to do something about it. What did you learn about the population of people who are poachers that was surprising to you? Okay, so that's a great question because I had, I was invited to watch a prosecutor prosecute three sets of poachers. I was also invited to film a village of reformed poachers. So what I found really curious and, and completely threw me, I did not, I didn't expect this at all, was that the three sets of poachers where we were in the court watching them get prosecuted they didn't care at all they were thugs they literally looked like thugs that you would find in any major city just young thugs they were disinterested didn't care that the magistrate was saying to them you could go away for life with these accumulated offenses that you're being you know accused of they didn't care at all and then juxtaposed to when i went to the reformed poachers village which i was i was very apprehensive about going to that village and yet had the most incredibly hopeful day when i did meet them was that they had a general regret about the animals lives that they had taken and in fact one of the poachers uh, said leonidas he said to me that 
he could never look the animal in the eye when they were spearing it. What he would do is he would find the animal with his group, whoever were going out, group of poachers together, and he would he would lunge at it, but he would look away. And he said, you know, that's all they knew. It was their lifestyle. They they their generations um, before. It's what they have been taught, and yet he knew on some level that it was wrong. And so now he regrets it, but he also understands that it was all that he knew and he didn't have another way of making a living. So now what they do is that they've started this village and it's, it's called Gorilla Mountains Village. And they use, um, they create crafts, their, their cultural crafts, and they sell them to the tourists. They've also set up a village whereby you go around to each of their huts and they tell the story of their tribe. It's such a successful concern that they have co-opted now, co-opted it across 13 different uh, regions in Rwanda. And so much so that even men and women who are not reformed poachers want to join those villages. Mm. So clearly, you know, and they're actually making an incredible living. They now buy their own homes. They have, um, they have more taking that option than they did when they were poaching and selling illegal body parts to whomever, whichever foreigner would come in and purchase them. How does making this film change your life moving forward? Oh my goodness me. Um, you know, I, I, I mean, I guess it remains to be seen, right? Um, because, but, but one of the things, for, okay, here, here's a great, <laughs> I hate flying. I'm, I'm a nervous flyer. And I had to fly all over the world a ton of times for this film. And I did not have one element of fear getting onto any of those flights. And that's like a little tiny puddle jumper getting, you know, flying around the Maasai Mara in, in, in Kenya, mm -hmm. uh, or huge planes to Vietnam or wherever we went. And when you have a belief in something other than yourself, it takes all of your self-consciousness away. You know, I feel like we, especially in this selfie, selfie era that we're living in, we introvert a lot. Like it's about, oh, how am I seen? I don't have any of that. It's like how, uh, you know, what do I want to leap into next? I feel like when you're, when you're focusing on something bigger than yourself, uh, you have a happier life. And you meet, I mean, you've met, I've met so many incredible people on this journey. And I hope, I hope that I get to continue meeting more as the film, you know, rolls out. So maybe that it would just be that I continue being courageous in my choices. Um, I had to overcome a lot of fears while traveling uh, in these places. You know, we, we weren't secure a lot of the time and we were women, so we were vulnerable. Uh, we did ultimately have a couple of male guys join us and they became like family. They're our, they're our blood. But I think to maybe continue be make courageous choices that are for the good of the planet and the environment. I love that. I mean, th that's such a great universal takeaway that when something matters to us enough, we will take action within fear. Yes, definitely. I guess, it, and also for, um, this is sort of circling back to a question you said you had asked me earlier about what people could do. Um, Research everything. Research where you give your money. There are some very successful organizations that uh, are world-renowned. And as I mentioned in the film, a couple of the big ones, less than 0.1% of the money that they raise goes to the cause. I'm not here to shame anyone or name anyone, but what I am saying is that that information is out there. So just check with whomever it is that you're donating to that your dollars or pounds, whatever you're uh, currency is, is going to the actual cause that you believe in. And they have to, by law, state, you know, what goes to administration and, and, and they list it all. So it is, it's easy out there. I just say research where you spend your money and how you spend your money. And as Petronelle says, you know, try to understand the issue and not just throw money at it. Try to sort of have a real understanding and then see where your skill set 
fits in to solving some of these issues. Because you can always go and volunteer at all of these places that, that I mentioned in the film or the women that, that, where they work. Most of them have volunteer programs. Now, that's definitely more ambitious than, you know, five bucks a month to open above Africa. I will mm-hmm. say that. Mm-hmm. But since I've come back, three of my friends right now are in Africa volunteering. So it's, mm. it's having an effect. <laughs> For sure. We, we were watching it and we were like, okay, we just, we need to go find a way to really I, do this kind of work somehow. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? So one of the guys after um, we premiered at the Newport Beach Film Festival and it was really exciting because the film got a standing ovation and the Q&A afterwards was, was really, really um, uh impactful and one of the questions was well i'd love to go to africa but it just seems so wild and dangerous but that's the very reason to go to africa right that, because it has that element but i also would say on the pushback if someone was coming to new york from the, for the first time or la for the first time or london or name many major cities then you know what you need to sort of research where you're going there are some dangerous parts in every city and such is the case in africa there are some dangerous parts that you maybe wouldn't want to go to but if you do then just make sure you're safe and research i love the sort of the climax at the end which is really this wonderfully heavy-handed point you make is like most people don't act because they don't know and now you know <laughs> so <laughs> what are you, you going to do <laughs> yeah and well, is that sort of the bottom line takeaway that you hope the film provides that now you you at least know your eyes are open i'm so glad you brought that up because um i have had some pushback from that ending and i didn't make a film that was so difficult to make to have a soft ending you know i i made a film to say this was not easy for any of us that worked on this film this was not easy at all it wasn't easy emotionally it wasn't easy physically so at the end of it, I say, you can go to breakingtheirsilence.com and we list all the people that you can donate to. We don't make a penny of it. It goes straight to them, straight to their page. You know, there are things you can do that don't hurt you at all. <laughs> so I couldn't end that journey that we went on. And, you know, for me, it was like a mission. For me, I was just indestructibly moving forward. But it wasn't that way necessarily for my crew at the beginning. They were just, oh, it's a job and let me go. So I had to always factor that in until it then be- they took it on. Um, the two guys I mentioned, um, Eve Haji and Ryan Hall, who were my um, sound man and my, my cinematographer, they are African and they didn't know that poaching was an issue. So that was mind blowing to me. They're inside Africa. And now of course they are ambassadors for the cause because they lived it and they were petting the rhino up close. And it was was wildly exciting and it was a difficult journey. But at the end of the film, I had two choices. I could have ended it. There was a soft ending opportunity or a choice for me. Um, But but the way in which I, I constructed the film was, look, this was my journey and this is my takeaway at the end. And this is what I did. So hopefully I'm going to encourage you to do something too. And what will that be? And if it's not, if your choice is, I don't want to do anything, that's okay. That's a choice too, right? But you're making that choice and you're certainly not making that choice by saying, oh yeah, but I didn't know because now you do know. In what you're even saying in this interview, and I think it comes through well in the film as well, that it's different to sort of challenge people and it could almost be shaming and, and therefore ineffective if we have that call to action without providing options that have different levels of comfort and accessibility. And I think you've done a great job today of letting people understand that just the smallest action, you don't have to get super crazy and change your life and 
put yourself in the line of fire in Rwanda to to make a difference. You can go down to your park and you can pick up tinfoil so that the crows in your neighborhood don't die. You know, you can, you can do anything, right? You can go to the yeah. beach and pick up litter. And that's a start and that's actually impactful. So I think, I think it came across to me as much, I was much more receptive to it because you were also offering all a menu of options. Yeah. Well, I, can I jump on something you just said? Because yeah, yeah. Just, I love that idea of like getting a bunch of friends and going down to the beach and making it fun. So for me, I, nobody makes a film in a vacuum. And, and in the, on this film, I had such a core family group of friends and you know professionals that made this what it is. Um, and one of my first uh, believers was my executive producer, Keith Watson, because this was just a crazy idea in my head that I wanted to do. I thought I could do this. I think it's important. And he literally said, okay, I'm going to back you. And he raised from his own network, he raised the funds that we could make this film. And so that then pushed out to my cinematographer. So she was, uh, I handpicked her and she was a little nervous at first about, you know, going to Africa, but then we get there and she just ate it up. She was fantastic. But eight days in, she fell and broke her ankle and I actually had to ship her back to LA. Mm. She was devastated because suddenly, you know, she'd been meeting all these women and wanting to stay with it. Right. And then that's how come my co-producer in, in South Africa, uh, Rick and Robin Matthews, they said, well, we know this great guy. He's in Cape Town. Maybe he'll fly out. And he flew out. And that's Eve, uh, Ibrahim Haji. And he stayed with me for the entire year, even to the point of flying himself in on his own dollar um, to film, uh, you know, in New York because he just didn't want to give up the project. He just came in. It was, it was a one-day shoot. But you know, that's how committed they were. So I guess what I'm trying to say is like galvanize your family. My, one of my very best friends in the world, Christine Norton, she has been by my side from the beginning of this project to the, on every project, I have to say, she's been amazing. And, you know, we talk about her experience on this. It's like mine was, I was driving this project. I'm the producer and director and she gets to help and stand up for animals that she believes in and that she loves. And now we forever will have this bonding experience on this film. Uh, same with, you know, Jennifer Fistrush did the same thing. So, so in saying that, well, you know, what can I do? If that's too singular for you, you can also say, hey, what can I do with the group of people that I go through life with? What can we do so that we can have this experience to talk about for the rest of our lives? Say, hey, remember when those animals nearly went extinct and we stepped up and now they're going to be here forever? How cool would that be, Jesse? Beautiful. Yeah. What can we do? If you can distill it down to, to more universal on this one, and then we'll come back and finish with um, the specific references you were talking about. So if people are listening and whatever their thing is, it may not be poaching, it may not be environmentalism, but they, they can connect with your spirit to, to create a courageous act in the world. Having gone through what you went through to make Breaking Their Silence, what's one point of advice you'd give to someone who is trying to summon the courage to do their thing? The act of doing is all you need. It's, you know, once you, I think a lot of people sit around and talk about doing things and that's much easier than actually taking that first step. And, you know, they say like, how do you climb Mount Everest one step at a time? I would say the biggest piece of advice I could say is literally physically stand up and do something, do one thing. doesn't matter how small it is, but that one step will take you to your second step and to your third step. And then ultimately you'll look back and you've walked a mile. So I understand at the time that this is released, you have a couple opportunities for folks to see the film. Again, Breaking Their Silence is a new documentary by Carrie. So give us the information in case people want to go see the film. 
I will. Thank you so much. Uh, so we're playing at the New Haven Documentary Film Festival on June the 3rd at the Whitney Humanities um, uh, it's on it's in Yale somewhere but you can check it out it's on our site it's we're also listed on the New Haven Documentary Film Festival site and then on the 7th of June we're playing in San Francisco at the Roxy Theatre 7 p.m. on the 7th of June and I will be there for both of those screenings and so if you hear it from Jesse's uh, podcast with me then come and say hi I'd love to meet you lovely and are there other ways that the masses will be able to check this out eventually you know, so eventually we'll be seeking distribution, but my platform for this is that I shot this film in 4K, which is magnificent quality footage, and it needs to be seen on the big screen. And so what I'm doing is I'm spending uh, as much time as I can playing the film festivals around the world so people can see it on the big screen. And that way, of course, I get my whole point out, which is awareness of the issue. And then ultimately, I hope that some distributor looks at it and says that's something valuable that we'd like to get involved with. Let's just summarize again, if people want to get involved specifically to support you and Over and Above Africa or the, and or the film, what are the ways they can engage with you? Absolutely. So you can go to our websites, breakingtheirsilence.com and overandaboveafrica.com. Uh, we list our women's organizations in the film on breakingtheirsilence.com. So you can certainly donate that way. Or you could follow us on social media, which is at overaboveafrica and at breaking underscore their silence.com or at breakingtheirsilence.com. Is there anything that we didn't get to touch on that you'd like to touch on? I can't believe how fast this went, Jesse. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> There isn't. I think I just want to thank you so much for the work that you're doing and putting out a podcast this, this inspirational and, and hopeful for all of the guests that you do interview. I think that that's what we need in this world. Less criticism and much more. Let's just back everybody up and make them feel good about themselves. To check out Carrie's work, go to breakingtheirsilence.com and overandaboveafrica.com. My question for you is this. Think about a young person in your world. Maybe your child, a friend's child, or someone in your extended family or community. What do you want to be able to tell them you did when they ask you why humans let humans destroy the ecosystem and thus humanity? This has been the Supergivers Podcast, and I'm your host and producer, Jesse Johnson. You can help me out with one of three simple actions. You can write a five-star review on iTunes, you can tell a friend about the show, or you can listen to another episode on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. You can learn more about me and my equine-based leadership work at supergivers.com. Thanks for listening.